I'm Shannon Green, and you're listening to On Extremism, a podcast that takes a deep dive into the causes, manifestations, and responses to one of the most important issues of our time. In this series, we'll talk to top experts, policymakers, and practitioners to understand how we can better counter violent extremism around the world. Our podcast is made possible by the CSIS Commission on Countering Violent Extremism, chaired by former British Prime Minister Tony Blair and former U.S. Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta. For more information on the commission, please visit www.csis.org. Welcome back to On Extremism, CSIS's podcast on countering violent extremism. I'm thrilled to introduce today's guest, Scott Atron, an anthropologist who is the Director of Research at the National Center for Scientific Research in France and the founding fellow of Oxford University's Center for the Resolution of Intractable Conflict. Through his fieldwork and research, Scott has spent an enormous amount of time in the field on the front lines of conflicts in the Middle East and elsewhere, interviewing people on every side of the conflict, including ISIS fighters. He has written and spoken extensively on what motivates extremists, the drivers of radicalization, the appeal of ISIS's ideology or revolutionary ideology, and how we can bring radicals back from the brink. Scott, welcome, and thank you for being part of this series. Happy to be with you. Great. Well, let's start with your work. Not all of our listeners will be familiar with the research that you've done. Can you tell us a little bit about the field work that you've done, interviewing combatants who are on the front lines, and what that's like to be to be in the center of a conflict like that? Well, the reason I've been interviewing uh, people on the front lines, well, there are a few reasons. First, it was prompted by a statement that uh, President Obama made on 60 Minutes back in September 2014, where he endorsed the opinion of his national intelligence director, James Clapper, and said the uh, biggest problem we've had facing the Islamic State was that we overestimated the uh, ability of the Iraqi army to fight and we underestimated that the ability of the Islamic State to fight. Then he went on to say um, that uh, ability to fight is an imponderable. And um, people who've been on the front line know that ability to fight isn't an imponderable and we were also interested in understanding why all this money had been gone into the training of Iraqi troops and they couldn't take a punch in the nose. They simply ran away from Mosul where they outnumbered the Islamic states between five and ten to one. So we decided to go onto the front lines and talk to all the combatants and run psychological experiments with them to actually um, find out what are the particular variables that predict will to fight. And just um, just right now, just we just finished a set of studies uh, on the front lines on the Mahmoud front uh, in Iraq, which is the main front right now for the retaking of Mosul, where the Iraqi army is again stymied by Islamic State fighters, and we concentrated on a battle for one village, and we took about 20 fighters from um, Arab Sunni militia, Peshmerga. We also did Islamic State prisoners, because uh, it's hard to uh, talk to them in their own territory without uh, having your jumpsuit pressed. Um, we talked to Yazidis as well, fighters in Sinjar, um, PKK, and we uh, performed a set of tests where we asked them um, 
what their devotion to their values are, to what extent they're fused with their comrades, to what extent they're willing to make costly sacrifices. Uh, these are the main predictive variables uh, for willingness to fight. And we find, of course, that um, PKK fighters, YPG fighters, Islamic State fighters uh, are at the top. Uh, but uh, the Peshmerga are getting close to the level uh, of their Marxist-Leninist brethren. Uh, as you know, uh, after the United States helped them set up the uh, Kurdish regional government with a no-fly zone back in 1992, the Peshmerga became a, from a mountain fighting organization, became a fat social welfare organization on the dole. And when the Islamic State came in the summer of 2014, swept across the Mesopotamian plain with the weapons they captured from the Syrian and Iraqi armies, uh, the uh, Peshmerga simply folded. And that's when uh, Mr. Obama, uh, early August, was taken out of a restaurant with Michelle and told by Generals Dempsey and Lloyd that they had 90 minutes before Iraqi Kurdistan would fall and perhaps all of Iraq. Uh, the uh, forces, the air forces, were able to stabilize the front, and we've been working on that front ever since then. We've also been working in Syria with Nusra fighters, Jordan and Syria, uh, because there's a split, of course, between Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, and my own attitude is very much like uh, Churchill's, not that I compare myself with Churchill, just the attitude uh, in World War II that to defeat Mr. Hitler, I'd make a pact with the devil. And Nusra has been reaching out, um, changing their tune, saying that Sheikh Osama never really wanted to destroy the West. All he wanted to do was um, get the United States and its allies out of the Middle East. Um, you get out of our hair, we'll get out of yours. Uh, making uh, sort of gestures that we're willing to get along with you and perhaps we can work together to um, combat the Islamic State. Not that I believe them terribly, but I'm very interested in the splits uh, and also why it is that the Islamic State, as they, as the Nusra fighters themselves were telling us, the, United, the Islamic State is eating them up the way the Bolsheviks ate up the anarchists in a, the similar wave of terror a hundred years ago. And have you seen a political appetite to try to play upon those splits and drive a further wedge between terrorists? No, I, I see an interest. But I see absolutely no concerted action, either by the United States or the British government. I can't go into the details, but we've tried to provide them opportunities. And uh, basically, they don't want to have anything to do with Salafi groups for all sorts of reasons. And so nothing much is being done. Now, perhaps special clandestine operations are underway, in which things are being, which I'm not privy to. But on the whole, no, there hasn't been any cooperation. Mm -hmm. And we're also interested in seeing how we can prevent the emergence of a violent successor. And uh, I think that's even more difficult than defeating the Islamic State. A senior commander of the Sunni forces fighting in Iraq um, today uh, publicly will say things like, um, well, we lack forces, we lack force strength, but privately will tell you that uh, what he lacks is competent officers. And... Um, uh, the will to fight, that the quota system, the sectarian quota system, um, prevents him from hiring any competent officers. The Kurds, the Sunnis, and all the factions among them want their family members and one another to be the uh, 
to be the leaders of the forces, and as a result, there's very little cooperation among the senior commanders and even less among the ground troops. And without that, even the planned uh, 12 brigades of up to 50,000 people planned for the retaking of Mosul are not going to be enough. But I think that sooner or later, um, maybe the coalition will get it together and defeat the Islamic State in its territory, even though they're taking root in other places like Central Asia. Uh, just my researchers are telling me uh, they're taking over the Palisaro in southern Morocco. They're embedding in Tunisia. Of course, they've embedded in Sinai, uh, in uh, Indonesia and the Philippines to a, to, a, to a small extent, small but significant extent, uh, and elsewhere. But if they are defeated, then I think that it will take the wind out of their sails. We're already seeing a, a fairly significant reduction in the number of recruits going over to Syria uh, and Iraq. And then the problem were with um, Western European foreign fighters uh, and North African foreign fighters and even Central Asian foreign fighters, but especially Western European foreign fighters, um, will be of a different order. And they're, of course, the most dangerous for our societies. Uh, many of them are citizens of European countries and if not identified have access, free access to any other European country and to the United States uh, without a visa and can cause havoc as they've already done. So one of the things that's been the most mystifying about ISIS is why young people in particular are drawn to them. And so many people have expressed their opinion about why that is the case. But you've actually talked to some of these individuals on the front lines. First, there are general factors, um, but they're not very, they're not, they're practically worthless as explanatory factors or as the basis for any programs to stop them from going. And I'm talking about the so called root causes notions, whether they be marginalization or uh, quest for identity or quest for significance uh, or any of the others <laughs> uh, you might mention. And that's for a very s simple statistical reason. Let's take France, for example. 0.03%, that is three out of every 10,000 young Frenchmen uh, have been um, identified by authorities as part of jihadi networks by the Prime Minister. That's 2,900 about. Um, now, is it only three out of every 10,000 young Muslim men who are having problems of marginalization or quest for significance or problems of identity? No, there are millions. In fact, there are millions of French young men and women having these problems. So any program that is based on trying to solve those problems is a bit like using an atom bomb or at least a large cannon to kill a fly and the fly will probably get away anyway. Uh, also the fact that what we find and we've just finished a pretty comprehensive analysis of the Brussels and Paris networks, uh, well, in fact we briefed the National Intelligence Council two days ago on it, um, we find about uh, two to three hundred people involved. There were actually twenty plots. Uh, we've been able to track these networks. Some of them have actually been developing since uh, 2001, um, taken over by ISIS and by people uh, that, that are now affiliated with ISIS. And what we find is very interesting. First of all, over 80 percent uh, joined through their friends and families, uh, almost never through just through recruiters. Um, and they join in clusters 
So if it was through social media principally, you'd find a diffuse pattern of recruitment. And this is not what we find. We find a very clustered, clumpy pattern of recruitment. And that means that even if there are recruiters, there weren't for Al-Qaeda, basically, there are for the Islamic State, um, even if there are re recruiters, they work on pre-existing social networks. And what they usually do is are able to tip one or two people in that network who then bring along everybody else. So the concentration has to be on how these particular groups and clusters form and how to identify those people in them that can tip them to do exactly what the Islamic State does but in reverse. Mm. So for example, one of the things I would ask if I were uh, an interrogator, which I'm not, of Salah Abdus Salam, who was recently transferred, who was one of the perpetrators of the Paris attacks, who was caught in Brussels in Molenbeek in the neighborhood just a few hundred meters from where the entire world was looking for him. The reason he wasn't caught was because he was protected by family who were not involved in criminal activities and by the entire population who actually threw stones at the police when they came for him. So without these very large implicit support networks that aren't involved in criminal activities at all, these terrorist networks would collapse. But because they're not involved in criminal activities, police and security agents don't really work with them and have no knowledge of them and how they study. I'm actually surprised that no one even talked to the guy in the fruit stand across from the cafe where they started plotting everything. He knew about what was going on, but the, nobody bothered to ask him because, you know, he's just a fruit stand operator. Um, and what we find is uh, he was protected by a friend, uh, Abir Khan, Abid Abir Khan, who was put in the ba they put his mother, Najima, put him in the basement, and uh, she was arrested, but of course released. And in fact, uh, they were related, the Abir Khans, to Fatima, who was related to one of the uh, young men who blew up Masood back in 2001, which started the whole thing, leading to the... And she, in fact, was the one who connected probably Zerkani, Papa Noel, Khalid Zerkani, to many of these pre-existing networks. And we find that in the pre-existing networks, so we find, for example, in Brussels and Paris, two people, um, Papa Noel, that is Khalid Zerkani, and Fuad Belkasim, are responsible for directly recruiting over one-third of all the people in Belgium, for example. And those who they then brought in, brought in m all the rest. So it just took two people with direct connections to ISIS, connected through someone who had already been in these networks since before 9-11, to bring the whole thing together. And it is a particular and peculiar characteristic of the structure of these networks we have to deal with. So uh, to get back to Salah Abdesalam, the question I would ask him when he was transferred to France is, the, 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 the first and maybe only question is, why is it your brother didn't join, Mohammed? Mm -hmm. Because if you can explain why it is that someone close to everyone in the network, as close as possible, didn't join, then you are on the first step to understanding what could stop these ideas from spreading. Same thing with Murad, um, Murad uh, Lashrawi, whose brother Najim blew himself up. Um, again, it's it's getting into the particularities of the network, their group dynamics, how the ideas spread. So that's why I, 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 I think ideology and religion are empty 
terms. Well, I think they're empty for many, many reasons. Um, it's how ideas are embedded in particular minds, in particular contexts. Uh, religious propositions are generally, uh, I know people aren't going to like this, but they are semantically they, and logically and empirically preposterous. For example, if I say God is omnipotent, omniscient, and, and, and uh, omnipresent, this is literally impossible to conceive. I actually do experiments where I say, I do this with sadhus, I do this with imams, I do this with rabbis, I do this with normal populations all over the world. I say, little Johnny, he's in Wisconsin. His foot's caught under a rock, the water's rising. At exactly the same moment, Mary is in Australia. She falls on the train track. She can't get up. The train is coming. She begs God to save her. So both are praying to God to save them. What's God going to do? Well, nobody says, wham, bang, he just does it. He says, how fast is the train coming? How fast is the water rising? Does Johnny or Mary have little brothers and sisters if God can't get to the first one or the second one? Because you literally can't conceive of what it means. Okay, if that's the case, that's the, then religious propositions are inherently open-textured, and that's why we have rabbis and priests and imams to give them context and inter concrete interpretations every week in sermons, for example. And so religion is what people make of it. The Ten Commandments do not have, by, uh, we've done many experiments, the same interpretation even from year to year, much less over the last 2,500 years. And that's what makes religion adaptable. It also is what makes religion binding in ways that social contracts are not. because. If you show commitment to ideas that cannot be logically verified or falsified, um, this demonstrates pure commitment. Whereas to social contracts, it's a, it's a measure of convenience. And if there's a better deal down the line, then there is always pressure to defect. But if there is no better deal down the line, if you believe in these inherently open-textured worlds, then You'll, you, there's no exit strategies. You're part of it. Uh, so when people tell me, well, it's about the canon of the Quran, for example, preaching this or that, well, I say, of course, but that allows for infinitely many interpretations. And then someone says to me, well, we have to teach true Islam or true Christianity. I say, well, that's inherently ridiculous because there is no such thing. It's what people make of it at a particular time and place. But once we admit that, what we can try to do is take religious beliefs, religious canon that people are familiar with and, he, and bring them to understand interpretations that uh, lead to a more productive life. But again, that all depends on the context in which they live in. For example, if you defeat the Islamic State militarily, at least take the wind out of its sails, then you could begin to talk about to these young people about alternative interpretations, not only of their religious beliefs, but also of alternative lifestyles, introducing them to different vocations uh, uh, or ways of living. If you do not destroy the Islamic State, if the Islamic State, in fact, as they say, their war cry, as we hear on the battlefield, is we endure and we grow, we expand. If that's the case, it's very much more difficult um, to do that. So you've written and talked about the importance of these social networks and fusion with buddies, I think is terminology that's been used. What can be done to break down those social 
binds that keep people together and keep people committed, not just to the cause, but to one another. So we find two predictors of willingness to die and fight and even torture or kill your own members of your own family if necessary. The first one, as you identified, is fusion. And we do very simple experiments on the iPad or with plastic cards where we have two circles. One circle is the me and the other is a group and they're not touching. Then we have the two circles touching, then slightly overlapping, then half overlapping, then completely overlapping. Those who choose the me circle, choose the me circle entirely within the group circle, they are fused. And they behave very differently than all the others, no matter how, to what degree they overlap. Mm. And they have one and only one identity. You and I have many identities. Oh, we're Americans, or we're Yankee fans, or we're Redskin fans, or we're professors, or whatever it is. We are today, and we put on a different hat tomorrow. Once you're fused in a group, it's very much like in traditional preliterate societies almost, there's only one identity possible. And everybody in that group is willing to sacrifice and die for every other member in a group. Very much like a family, and the idiom of it is imagined kinship, fictive kinship, brotherhood and sisterhood. And the ultimate behavioral variable, of course, is death. And it's not posing because they do kill themselves. I mean, we were just in one battle where it was six to seven hundred Kurds against uh, 90 Islamic State fighters. Fifty-two died. Seventeen were Ingamasi, that is, suicide attackers uh, who lead the charge. And uh, there were fifteen left and seven blew themselves up to cover the retreat of the others. Well, that's commitment, and that's fusion with your buddies. Uh, but that's not the only predictor. That we find on the front lines in the Battle of the Bulge, or among American combat mm -hmm. troops, or special ops, willingness to die for your buddies. But the second thing, and we also even find it in gangs, uh, but the second predictor, and this is an interaction, which means it's independent, but when it comes together with fusion, it ampli they amplify one another in terms of their effect, and that is commitment to sacred values. Such values are values that can't be negotiated. Political and economic theory say that everything is fungible, but of course, if I offered to buy your children, no matter what the amount, you probably wouldn't sell them. I would not, <laughs> on the record. <laughs> and the more I offered you, the more you think I'm crazy. <laughs> it's like, same thing for selling out your country. Yep. or for selling out whatever your, your religion, if that happens to be what you identify with as sacred. And you'll find extraordinary um, commitment to these values and willingness to sacrifice for them. Um, people don't understand. I mean, there was just a group of Holocaust survivors went to visit uh, uh, Poland, uh, and th they were willing to... Um, just to get a hold of some memento, like a ring, we're willing to make great sacrifices just for something like that. And we do this experiment just here in the United States where we take uh, graduate students, PhD students in, in um, night classes, most of whom are married, and we uh, bring in a fake jeweler and we say, uh, he looks at the ring, marriage ring, and says, yes, I can make a copy. And we offer $1,000 if they'll leave their ring the jeweler will come back. He promises the same gold content and everything. And, but you, it, we say it's a perception experiment. Um, and then you pick the ring you want and the $1,000.
but we won't tell you which one it was. If you can't distinguish, what does it matter? And nobody will do it except for people getting divorced or from cultures where rings don't matter. We do the same thing with real estate agents where we bring them into, uh, I'm getting off the track, but this will help you understand it. We bring in real estate agents and, uh, I mean, we get real estate agents to work with us and people come in and they want to sell their house. And then we have three conditions. We tell, say nothing, a price is offered. Then we say, oh, and by the way, they're going to build a shopping mall on this property. Price goes way up. Or, oh, and by the way, we're going to build a hospital for handicapped children. And people will accept a significant reduction in what they're willing to accept as a price for their house. Or we'll say, for example, ah, and by the way, do you know that they've discovered um, early settlers from the 18th century buried on that property? And then people don't even want to sell their land. So these are intangibles that are very important to human beings. In fact, those are the things that keep societies together, very much like religious beliefs. So when sacred values mix with fusion and the values define the group, then people are willing usually to sacrifice to the death. And we find that commitment with Islamic State foreign fighters, not locals. And we find that commitment with um, PKK, YPG, Yazidi militia, and to an extent the Peshmerga. Uh, we don't find it for the Iraqi army. When we ask them, for example, oh, are you few, to what extent are you willing to fight for Iraq? Zero percent, they say, but they're willing to fight for their Sunni tribal lands. And what does it say about, you know, attempts to buy people off? In other words, there are some they strategies that say, you know, maybe if we can just get this person employed and they get a salary or they get, you know, X amount of money every month, they'll break away from, you know, this extremist group and sure. sort of rejoin society. Okay. Or if we distract them by, you know, offering them, you know, some other kind of economic opportunity that they will break off. I mean what you're suggesting is that such a strategy wouldn't work because they wouldn't be willing to sacrifice the sacred values for something that is tangible monetarily. Uh, the path to radicalization is a path. Sometimes it takes many years. Sometimes it happens in weeks. Sometimes it can even happen in days. Depending upon where on the path you are, different kinds of incentives and disincentives can move you further along the path or take you away. Sometimes early on, when people aren't locked in, things like jobs or girlfriends or boyfriends or alternative paths in life or an apartment, or an apartment mm -hmm. will do the job. Mm -hmm. Once, however, people are locked in, not only will they not do the job, attempts to offer material incentives backfire. And we've done many studies published in, in the top journals in the world, like Science and the Proceedings of the National Academy, in real-world contexts, in negotiations, uh, on the Iranian nuclear question or on the Israel-Palestine question about how important values are. And if you, if you offer to negotiate or trade off on those values, they backfire and people get angrier or more entrenched and likely more violent, exactly as if I insisted on buying your children from you. Mm. Right? You can't give up a sacred value any more than you could give up a piece of yourself for your children but you can reinterpret them. And that's a very different negotiating strategy, how you might interpret them without ever giving them up. And that can be part of the 
um, part of a de-radicalization strategy. The difficult thing is when they're when you have both a fused group locked into a sa and a, and they're locked into a sacred values, then we don't see any way to get them out except to physically destroy the group. Then you can work with them, just like in we find, for example, uh, among the Tamil tigers, uh, that we can use all sorts of um, incentives, including material incentives to bring them back into society and it's been quite successful. But that is because the, the Tamil Tigers and their leader were physically eliminated. So that dream doesn't exist. The thing that held them together don't exist. Then you've got the opportunity. The difficult thing is as long as this thing exists, which is a, people don't understand it, they think it's just cruel and barbaric uh, and evil, which it well may be, but it is festive and joyful and inspiring, as any true revolutionary movement is, especially for young people. And as long as that dream exists, as long as they believe it's there, and gives that sense of adventure and glory and meaning and significance and dignity, then it's much more difficult. You, uh, my, uh, the, I've seen the most successful people I've seen at bringing them away are the closest to them, Salafi groups. Okay. Um, for example, the first happened to me, I was, with, I was in Sulawesi, this is an island between Borneo and New Guinea. There was a splinter group of the Jama'a Islamiya who I was embedded with. <laughs> uh, and they had a, a suicide attack group called the Thalfa Muqatila. And there was a bunch of sort of Salafi preachers who would come in and say, you know, this isn't the way to do it. This isn't the way to do uh, Dawla. This isn't the way to to um, get more people to enjoy Islam, and they actually convinced these guys to uh, give it up. Mm -hmm. So you're anticipating my next question, which is, you know, I think there is this misperception that ISIS has been successful because of the brutality and because of the violence, because that's what people have seen on their news screens and through social media. But in reality, what you're saying is a significant proportion of the messaging is actually about sort of this positive, affirmative thing that someone can be part of. When you talk to these young people, do you get a sense of what would replace that sort of positive, affirmative vision that extremist groups offer them that would be much more beneficial for our society, not so destructive and harmful? I mean... I can't answer for the young people. And I don't think there's any attempt to find out among young people. I'll give you a, uh, a couple examples, but I will let me bring you back to a review that George Orwell did of Mein Kampf in 1940. So the Oxford Student Union, the cream of up-and-coming British intellectuals, had voted never to fight again for the values of democracy. There had been a horrific killing in World War One, and Orwell asks in the review, how comes it that socialist societies, and to a more grudging extent, capitalist societies, offer their people comfort, ease, avoidance of risk, hygiene, birth control, in short, the good life. And nobody is willing to sacrifice for the values that produce that. And Mr. Hitler, what is he offering his people? Death, destruction, revolution, utopia, 
and 80 million people fall down at his feet. Mm. And Orwell says, that's because Mr. Hitler has understood something fundamental about human nature. Human beings need, at least intermittently, self-sacrifice and a feeling of transcendence, and he provides them that. And if our societies can't do that, at least to the sections of their people, then they will go towards uh, movements, social movements, that do provide that, especially revolutionary movements, in which that's the main motivation, transcendent, utopian uh, society, the creation, the action to make it happen, especially for young, idealistic, uh, hormone-driven young people. That is um, a very, very attractive thing. So providing an alternative to that, as exciting as that, will do the job. Now, what did it in World War II? War. Mm. Our societies were mobilized, totally mobilized to war, and of course that mobilized our societies. Plus, societies like Britain were under existential threat. They were very close to not existing anymore, and they fought for their life, their collective life. So their values coalesced again. Uh, they became aware of them. So the Oxford Student Union's opinion no longer held sway. In fact, many members of that student union fought actively and bravely uh, in World War II because their system of values were under threat. Sometimes we're not even aware of the values that are important for us because the values that define our societies uh, define all the exchanges possible within them. And it's only when they're threatened many times that we become aware of them at all. So I'm afraid that the Islamic State is not really an existential threat yet. It certainly isn't a threat like the Nazis were, or even the Communists were. They certainly have very few material means. In fact, probably never in history of so few people with such few means caused such fear in so many. But that's a media problem as well, and now a political problem. Uh, but if they do become a true existential threat, which I don't see on the near horizon, uh, then I think you're going to have a lot of motivation in the other direction. But in terms of what we call counter-narratives, I think they're hopeless, right? First of all, they're mass messages, uh, mostly negative, that lecture at young people. And basically, young people think they're ridiculous, right? While the Islamic State, just a good one is moderation, like follow moderate Islam. I mean, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. It's, I ask these people, like, don't you have teenage kids? I mean, moderate, are you kidding me? And yet that is the counter-narrative that's most often proposed. Or, you know, Daesh uh, beheads people and they're mean to women. God, didn't we know that already? I mean... Whereas the Islamic State is a much more intimate, is it at, is at once much more intimate and much more universal. Mm. That is, they will target each individual person and look for their grievances, their frustrations, their ambitions, their hopes and desires, and speak to that. And then spend hundreds of hours, sometimes even thousands, taking those persons' personal history and trying to wet it and, the, and those of their friends to the story they have of the world. It's that process that's very important. Our counter-messaging is neither. It is neither intimate nor is it universal. 
So instead of counter-narratives and counter-arguments, I think we need counter-engagement, that is, getting involved in the networks themselves. The best people I've seen at this is the NYPD, who know what's going on, who engage, and some movements of, of young people like uh, Unoy Peace Builders uh, out of Pakistan, uh, Gulalai Ismail and her friends in northwest frontier Pakistan. They're amazing people. Just talking with Taliban have turned them around, and those they've turned around and turn, turn around others. So showing a genuine interest in young people and spending the time and energy and effort it takes to to draw someone out. Instead of somebody in the State Department or in an academic office sitting back and coming up with some kind of another cockamamie narrative. Yeah, it's all about willingness to engage. I think you said it before. You know, when does moderation ever appeal to a young person? So if, you know, a listener is thinking about their own, you know, teenage son or daughter, trying to think about how to, you know, how to engage them and how to interest them, you know, rarely do you reach a young person with a message of sit back, relax, you know, hang out on your couch, don't worry about it, you know, that sort of calming, I've tried moderate it. message. It doesn't work. <laughs> Somebody told me that it's... It's easiest to replace a revolutionary ideology with another revolutionary ideology. The question, of course, is, you know, what can supplant the, you know, the... Again, I can't answer that. Yeah. And, and there's no, there is no way I could or planners in Washington can come up with it. It, the, it will come up from the young people who have hopes and dreams and desires and problems with society but they must be helped and guided. It's a little bit like Alan Brooks' view of his boss, Winston Churchill, in World War II. He was Ch Ch Winnie's Church of Staff. He said, Winnie's got 10 ideas a day, one of which may be good. Our job is to figure out which one and help him develop it. Well, I was at the Global Youth Forum. I've been working with the yeah. Security Council. Um, and we had people from all over the world, young people from enthusiastic, bubbling, and they had this kumbaya movement. They were hugging one another and singing and everybody. And then they started saying, and then they had their final declaration. And it was, governments must do this, and governments must do that, and governments must, and I'm sitting next to the crown prince, and I go, oh my God, this is dead in the water, isn't it? And he goes, yeah, but you should have seen what it was like before we started talking to these guys. <laughs> because, but no one was helping these young people at all figure out there are real constraints on power. There are structures of power. There are nations here. There are bureaucracies. And how are we going to get these ideas, if we can figure out which ones are good to begin with, how are we going to channel them through the existing structures of the political and social order to get them realized? Nobody's doing that. Mm. The UN isn't doing it because they have to deal with governments. World Bank, forget it. Their clients are also governments. No one's directly engaging young people at all. And I'll just give you another Except for, well, except, for extremists. except for extremists. Right. I'll put this on the record. So I'm asked by um, U.S. Agency of International, uh, USAID, to take a look at their local governance program in Morocco, in which they've already spent tens of millions of dollars. Most of the money has gone to a bunch of urban architects, friends, who have siphoned it off and had a rented their offices from uh, through the relations with the king and his wife, uh, bought in all sorts of Italian furniture, um, 
to, some of it went into envelopes. I was following this stuff, envelopes to corrupt officials. But there were some good things. I mean, they were treating orphans off the street. So I say, okay, maybe we should figure out what really works and what really doesn't. So I asked, what am I supposed to do here? And they said, evaluate these maisons de, de, de jeunesse d'Al-Shabaab, these youth houses. What? How many are there? What does it cost? How many kids go in there? I said, that, yeah, but don't you want to know what's going on in there? They said, well, we can't quantify that. But we don't know what the deliverables they are. Well, that they become less violent. He says, that, well, that we can track in the long run. So I went into the houses, and they were surfing porn sites and jihadi sites. And they had invented their own language, Franglish. French, English, Spanish, and Arabic. Most of them had never finished the, the primary school. They had this language. They were talking about everything in the world, right? And I'm like, wow, is this fantastic. Here these kids have had this opportunity and created their own world, right? And it's private to them, and they're talking about everything you can imagine, and I'm figuring, wow, let's get into this. Let's really start looking into this and figuring out what they're thinking about. And the reaction, we've got to close it down right away. Why? Can you imagine the New York Times coming out with a story saying American taxpayer money has been used to have young kids in Morocco surf jihadi sites and porn sites? Right. So again, I don't see any attempt to engage you. And then I asked the NCTC. We had another briefing. And I said, how many field agents are you, are you out there trying to engage young people? Sort of silence around the room. Then someone said, I believe there was a field agent in LA. I said, There's a, a, are you kidding me? How much money, how many trillions of dollars have we spent on the war on terror and you got one field agent in LA, that's it? I said, what about the FBI? Are you, they said to me, are you kidding, the FBI? They want to get out of this business. Prevention, this is the gray area. They want law enforcement and they're, going, they're asking Congress and the administration have nothing to do with it. And so I'm saying, so who's taking care of this? Who's on watch? Nobody is on watch. Yeah, and then the question is, who do communities feel comfortable engaging with? Because I think that's where the law enforcement question has become so sensitive. It's, you know, would somebody in a community prefer to engage with a law enforcement official or somebody from a social service agency? Like, who is responsible within the U.S. government apparatus? And is there a civilian lead for that that... People are responsive to people who have, are interested in them and empathize with them. It doesn't matter where they come from. They can make connections with law enforcement and they can make connections with social services. The problem is the hidebound rules of government agencies which say we, we are allowed to do this and we're not allowed to do that. Uh, I'll give you another anecdote. So we were in the House of Lords. John Alderdice, Lord Alderdice, had, had a meeting, and where there were people from different services, including the intelligence services, military, from all over the world. Uh, I remember John Mueller was there, who's now um, NYPD head of intel, who was at the FBI at the time. And there was General Tito Carnavian. Tito was responsible for tracking down Nordine Tup 
and uh, the others of the Jamaa Islamiya splinters, and basically was able to, f to get them all through kinship and friendship networks. And we had a long relationship, still do. And Tito came up and showed a set of slides where he is embracing, there were three, three brothers involved in the first Bali bombing, two were executed, but the third repented in court. Mm. Okay, So he's embracing the third guy, who turned out to be very, very, very influential in identifying the networks, and they let him out to persuade others not to give themselves up, but just to, and they're hugging one another. And Tito says, this was the most, one of the most, this is the way we work, and this is the way we destroyed the Jamaa Islamiyah. It's Lincoln's attitude. When, when, when someone asked Lincoln during the war, late in the war, he was making a speech about how we have to think about the South uh, in generous terms. And a woman uh, whose son apparently had uh, died for the North said, how, can you, how dare you talk to that? How dare you try to uh, make nice with our enemies? And Lincoln responded, Madam, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? This is not an attitude that our public is today, in today's society, is willing to accept. But Tito showed that if you make it less a criminal enterprise than a public health issue, and you engage people as human beings without necessarily trying to figure out, oh, should I arrest him, should I put him away, what else? You have a much better chance of getting into the community. Well, John's reaction was, Tito, you're probably right, but can you imagine me hugging Timothy McVeigh? They'd have me hanging by my balls from the Dome of Congress. So, the mindset of how to deal with people who are even tending towards this mm. has to change because otherwise, how are you going to get into the communities? Well, it's also the acceptance of risk. So understanding if you are talking to someone, if you're engaging them, at what point do you have to report something or do you have to make it a law enforcement matter because there's a threat of violence? and knowing that if something did happen on your watch while you're engaging someone, you know, the consequences of that politically would be so damaging. Well, that's also because the American press and government insists that there be zero tolerance. Mm -hmm. But there's nothing in this world that can be brought to zero. If it's treated like in epidemiology, we treat an outbreak of an epidemic, no one expects zero um, contagion, yeah. right? You live with what's possible. The Israelis do that, mm -hmm. for example. Uh, whatever else you think might think about what the Israelis do. Um, our society has never been, I mean, it's based on such absurd fears. Uh, for example, the Boston bombing. Um, I, I writ, wrote about it right away. Um, most of the analysis, at least the defense, thought it was correct. Um, that this has nothing to do with Al-Qaeda commanding anything. It had to do with a bunch of these, and these two losers, basically, um, who decided to do jihad, especially the older brother, who in a Chechen family. And what happened? The U U.S. is put on worldwide alert. Boston is closed down. 
$500 million are spent tracking down these two. I mean, if they were just murderers on the street, it would have been. And they used a pressure cooker, which was declared a weapon of mass destruction. That is, a pressure cooker, which has the destructive power less than a carbine, right, um, is equated with a thermonuclear device, which has nine billion times the destructive power of a conventional bomb in World War I or World War II. Putting them together trivializes um, the threat. It at once magnifies it beyond all proportions while reducing real threats to um, apparently manageable forces. So my own students, I teach apocalyptic violence at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. And I asked my students, so what do you think about nuclear weapons? And they, I said, basically, it's like a big pressure cooker. Yeah, you know, we expect it to happen. And, you know, I'm, re I'm recalling uh, the days my father worked in the defense industry and how he was taken away in the middle of the night in October. And I said, Dad, is there going to be a nuclear war? I was 10 years old. He said, about 20% chance, son. And I thought that was good. But then he explained to me, 20% chance the world would cease to exist tomorrow. The world would just disappear as we know it. Hundreds of millions of casualties. So this kind of, of, of what we say in France, glissage, this this mixing and confusing of what are real threats and what are imagined threats uh, is not helping us at all. Well, so that is a really good segue to my last question, which is you bring a very unique perspective given your background in anthropology and also psychology. What sort of tools or mindset or perspective do you think that brings to the study of radicalization that is so important or is so unique? Reality check. Mm -hmm. Systematic, reliable, replicable reality checks, not based on good gut feelings, on fears, on wishful thinking, on polls. There is not, not a, very little of it. Do you know that there is no permitted government-sponsored research in Iraq? The President of the United States, the National Intelligence Director, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, believe this is one of the prime problems of our times. The Prime Minister of France two days ago say it is the struggle of our generation, yet there is nothing allowed in Iraq. They don't want any information that could undermine the narrative that Iraq is a failed state that can be reconstructed with good feelings and good wishes, and then some, we're going to finally have some kind of back to the old world nation-state order that we all love. So it's it's policy making, but not based on strong research, fact, and empirical evidence. No, it's disallowing evidence. Mm -hmm. That's how perverse this is. You know, the United States, 9-11 cost between four hundred and $500,000, according to the 9-11 Commission, right? According to the War Costs Project of Brown University, we've spent $4.4 trillion. That's 10 million times. It's a 10 million to 1 advantage for the bad guys, right? You'd think that, and are we better off than before? I, especially across the world? I don't think so. Well, that tells me that the proverbial notion of insanity is functioning, that we keep doing the same thing again and again, hoping for different results. This should tell you that we need another approach. 
Is it conceivable that terrorist and violent extremist groups actually have a strategy of bleeding the United States and West dry by expending our resources and our manpower? Well, just like Hitler wrote it all out in Mein Kampf and everybody said nobody believed it or nobody read it, so the Islamic State has done the same thing. Abu Bakr Baji is the pseudonym of an Egyptian who wrote the manual for what, for what became the manual that every emir of the Islamic State is required to read called the Idarat Tawahush, wash from animal means the management of savagery and chaos, um, state explicitly um, that the goal is to manage chaos where it exists, in places like Africa, uh, and to create chaos where it doesn't exist among the enemies in places like Europe or the United States. Uh, to use the chaos in chaotic places like Libya to cause chaos or refugee crisis, to cause chaos uh, in enemy countries, and to attack soft targets, to attack restaurants and theaters and sports palaces and concerts. And they specifically mention that because they're indefensible. It is impossible to defend cafes, right? So that undermines the faith of the population in, it, in the most basic function of its government, namely to provide security of its people. At the same time, it causes suspicion everywhere. If you have random violence against the citizens of a country in indefensible places caused by a group claiming to do so in the name of Islam, then everybody begins to suspect Muslims, which is precisely the strategy they outline in Dabik in their online production in January 2015. They want societies to turn on each other. To reduce the gray zone, as they call it. That is the sort of, that is the zone where most human beings inhabit, and certainly most Muslims, between true believers, as defined by the Islamic State, and infidels and apostates. And by infidels and apostates, they include even Al-Qaeda. So to reduce the gray zone, and to force people to choose Either I'm in the camp of Dar al-Harb, the camp of the infidels, the house of war, or I am in the true camp of Dar al-Islam. If you get the people in the host countries to hate Muslims or to suspect them, then you show that even those who want peace, which is the great majority of them, that desiring to live in peace only causes you suffering and intolerance. So your place is with us, obviously. Here we are to protect you. And it works. And then you have the rise of the xenophobic nationalist right, especially in Europe. They're working together in tandem. In fact, the kids I talk to in these places where there's a lot of people going to the Islamic State, they say to me, look, Marie Le Pen, Oban, these are the true Europeans. And we respect them because they don't lie. The Zionist Hollande, he lies. He's trying to pull the wool over everybody's faces. And so they're tearing apart the middle class, which is the mainstay of open societies, democratic societies, the way the communists and the fascists did in the 1920s. Now, it's not quite there, but let me tell you, I was with Soros in Budapest two years ago at Independence Day watching these guys in black shirts with torches walking through the streets saying death to Jews, death to Soros, death to gypsies, and death to immigrants, Muslims. And I'm like, man, this is like so somebody filming the 1930s. It hasn't reached those proportions everywhere. It's far from it. As I said, it's not as existential threat, certainly not here. 
but it's moving in terrible directions. And Europe, which only has a 1.6 reproduction replacement rate, that is 1.6 children for couple, to survive, for the middle class to survive, it's not the case in the United States, which can replace this population, but for Europe to live with that, either they have to ramp up their reproduction rate, which they're not doing, it's declining, or they need massive immigration to sustain the middle class. N but never before has there been such suspicion of immigrants. So they're in an untenable position, which everybody is hiding their head in the sand and unwilling to face. So that suggests that a strategy that you know, puts a premium on integration and on acceptance and on embracing you know, immigrants, embracing Muslims within their societies, and tamping down the hateful rhetoric and speech would actually be part of a comprehensive strategy to address violent extremism. Because the, the opposite of that, the, you know, the hateful rhetoric, the demonizing of certain groups within society is eliminating the gray zone that you talked about and is playing into this vicious cycle that actually benefits the narratives of these extremist organizations. But it's, a, it's, it's, it's not an easily uh, solvable or dealt no. with problem. I mean, take the Charlie Hebdo attacks. Yes, the Charlie Hebdo ridiculed Mohammed. Should we accept any compromise on free speech um, because of that? And in fact, in France, especially on the left, there was a lot of discussion of, well, we can understand it. And it was only after the November attacks where they just killed anybody that that discussion sort of stopped. But the, the a question of tolerance, um, of to what extent um, Western societies are willing to let their values themselves change, change yep. as a result of this, this is a very deep and difficult question. My own feeling is no. Though the values of Western society, I happen to think, should dominate. But if by the force of circumstance and majority uh, rule and um, there's some kind of accommodation. I, I don't know myself whether I'm willing to live with it. Um, refugees, pipe, refugees is another problem. The vast majority of refugees, overwhelming majority, are people who are in search of a better life, just like most of us are, and who need it and should be welcome. But it is the case. And my daughter, my own daughter, she organizes convoys of food until they destroyed the jungle in northern Calais and is still providing for their for for the refugee refugee kids um, but at the same time we know I know that the Islamic State is using these refugee pipelines I mean there's intelligence that shows them using it and so what do you do well you try to make a, as objective assessment as possible what are the real dangers of infiltration how can we stop it should we stop it just by banning it, as Donald Trump uh, argues? I think that's the worst possible move. Or should we try to figure out, again, how can we get into these? The best information is always human agent information, not big data information. Get into the networks. Get to know the people. Then you'll know what's going on. That's how we solve the problems of immigration in the beginning of the 20th century and the late 19th century. And then we built programs for them. We built high school football. We built the Boy Scouts. We built ways of bringing them out of 
exclusively of their segregated societies and into a larger society without changing our values, only enriching them. That I don't see that, that as the reaction to the current refugee problem. But I think you're right. If we were able to do that, we'd go a long way to helping to solve the problem of how to combat the strategy of eliminating the gray zone. So I think that's a terrific note to end on. I want to thank you so much, Scott, for being part of this podcast series, and we really appreciate your insights. Thank you so much. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Mm -hmm.